Good morning, good morning, good morning. My name is Rob Jacobson, if we haven't met yet. And I don't know what your week has been filled like, but I wanted to give us a little context for today because maybe you've been gone, some of us are new. So to start, we're just gonna put up our graphic to remind us why we come and why we gather. And it won't take a long time, but if you notice those icons in the corner, they go from broken to whole because we have to admit that the world is a broken place. And God created humanity for life. And every time a life is taken, it, it shows us and reminds us of the brokenness that we live in. And we just need to come and we need to say, not only is the world broken, but if we're honest, I'm broken. And there's things in me that I need to, I need to readjust and I need to rethink and I need to reframe. And so I come with that posture today and I pray that you do too. And if you're not there, that's okay. But just again, the context. Those graphics are not uh, square because we're not all perfect. We realize that we all come in different shapes and sizes and thoughts and backgrounds and we come together though, if you notice those four pieces make a cross. We come together and we find our hope in Jesus Christ. And through that hope in Christ, through his word and his spirit, we are made whole. And so we come seeking to be whole, or I come today seeking to be whole, and I pray that we would find that in the scriptures. We also don't think that I'm the only one who talks, so again, we did a meet and greet before that, and I'd be curious to know what some of your shows were, because I think they might be a little different than mine. So if anyone wants to be brave, would you tell me what TV show that you said you learned marriage from? Good old Beave. And what about Wally? I mean, really, truly? I think they slept in separate beds though, right? Did they have separate beds or no? Never mind. We didn't really know, did we? <laughs> uh, you know, because the Leave it to Beaver shows, um, anybody in the I Love Lucy or Father Knows Best era? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So marriage was very, very um, permanent, not very affectionate. And for sure, there was no affection with anyone else if you weren't married. They just kind of like walked out of the screen and you wondered what happened. But that, you know, if you grew up in that era, that's, is that okay? Good enough? All right, another show. The Simpsons. The, the Simpsons. Wow. For all men everywhere. Hump. What was the question? Yeah, I know. The Simpsons. Uh, I think Cosby Show was in the era of The Simpsons. Well, The Simpsons has kind of spanned like two or three generations. But the Cosby's family ties, anybody grew up on? on the, that was, I think I grew up on most of those. Like we learned that marriage was permanent, right? And affectionate. Teenagers were messed up, but you know, they added flavor and color to the show. Any, any other shows that we? Dick Van Dyke. Uh, yeah, separate, right? Permanent, affectionate but not on screen. Yeah, how about if you grew up in the, uh, you know, Seinfeld Friends Grey's Anatomy era? I'm just saying, like, marriage was not the place to find affection, right? Or intimacy. Like, if anything, they mocked it. Um, then you got shows like, oh, I don't know, Jane the Virgin, Transparent, Scandal, The Americans. I, I hope if you're young, you don't watch those shows, but... You will not see a wise marriage. Actually, that would just be an oxymoron. Wise marriage, you wouldn't see it. So part of why I say that is, depending on the era and the shows you grew up in, depends on kind of how you see marriage. 
and then in the family that you've experienced, but what about if you're not married? You know, the Bible actually says over and over and over and over, you shall not commit adultery. In fact, in the first nine chapters of Proverbs, two and a half chapters are devoted to the topic of adultery. So if you're young, I hope to keep it in the realm that you can still listen to this. If you're old, I hope to keep it in the realm that you can still listen to this. But sex is glamorized, sold, manipulated, advertised, over and over and over in society. And we're told that adultery doesn't really have any consequences. That's sort of the story that we live in. But as Allison prayed, we don't seek to write our own story. We seek God's story. So we come today with kind of this understanding that the world is a broken place, that God's word still speaks and is speaking. And so we I'd invite you to turn to Proverbs 5 as we try and hear from God on what it means to live wisely and then maybe what it means to be in a wise marriage. So let's just go there. Proverbs 5. And Lord, we ask and believe that you do speak, that you have spoken, and that you will continue to speak. So help us to listen with our ears and our eyes and our heart and our soul. Proverbs 5 says, My son, pay attention to my wisdom and turn your ear to my words of insight, then that you may maintain discretion and that your lips may preserve knowledge. Okay, let's just pause here because that's kind of weird. What does it mean for lips to preserve knowledge? It's not rhetorical. How do lips preserve knowledge? Keep speaking it. You got to pass it along. Okay, how did it get there? If lips could speak this knowledge, how did they get the knowledge? From other lips? From you, from you live it. So, where, so did your lips just figure that out? Oh, so it's got to go in your eyes, go through your brain, come out your mouth, and maybe travel down to that heart place. Yeah, yeah, Jesus says that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. When he's talking about people who say bad trees can produce bad fruit, good trees produce good fruit, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what is inside of us will come out of us. So for lips to preserve knowledge It means that it's got to come from our heart. Our heart has to be in this place where it's received wisdom. And so this father is saying to his son, and I believe he'd say to his daughter if he was writing to her. We'll come back to that. This father is saying, son, listen to me. I'm going to give you a little word picture here. Verse 3. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. All right, what do you know about honey? Hmm? Sweet? Sticky? Stick, I know, it is, isn't it? Yeah. What else? Crusty doesn't spoil. Yours is crunchy? That's awesome. We, hey, Aaron, we have crunchy honey too. And it stinks when you have to just squeeze with all of your strength because, you know, these are pipe cleaners. They're not very, so, uh, like, 
I mean, it's, it doesn't drip like water. Drips like honey is very different. It's very slow. It's thick. Think about the senses that that just invoked. Drip honey. Smooth as oil. What are some of the senses that were, that were um, initiated there? Taste. Touch, sticky. Taste, touch, smell. Mm-hmm. Drip honey, and it's slow. You can see it. I would say at least four of our five senses are invoked in just that one, one little phrase that Solomon is trying to give to his son. And here's the thing. In that time, there's no chocolate yet. Or at least it's not been mass-produced. They might have had it in China. There's no sugar. There's no soda or pop, depending on where you come from. It's the one sweetener that everyone can get. And he's saying, it just drips off. She's as smooth as oil. Her speech is smooth. And that's not about being a woman. That's just about what he's saying in this what it means to be an adulterous woman or an adulterous man, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But 2,000 or 2,500 years ago, here's what the leading Greek and Roman people thought about the spirit and the soul and the body. They would say that the spirit, the physical self, was separate from the spiritual self. So the Greeks would have a phrase like, if you're hungry, you should just eat. What's good for the body, you know, just do it. If you're thirsty, you should drink. And if you have a desire to do something with your body, then you should just do it. Because it won't affect your spirit. That's totally separate from your body. And so then there's this writer in 1 Corinthians, or a writer to the Corinthians named Paul. And he says, don't you realize in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you realize that your body is a sacred place? It's a place of the Holy Spirit. So you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for. This physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole thing. They are not disconnected. He would say they're connected. So that was about 2,000 or 2,500 years ago. Now, 500 years ago, this thing called the Enlightenment happened. There's some good things out of the Enlightenment, but basically what the leading people said is humanity focuses on science. That's what we can see and touch and prove. We focus on our senses because they inform our thinking and our emotions. And so we just need to take the spirit out of the equation because you know what? We can't define the spirit. We can't quantify it. We can't, we can't prove it. So therefore, we just start ignoring it. And over the last 500 years, that's what we've done. And I think when we see people take a life and not mourn, it's part of this idea that our spiritual self is being ignored further and further, that we are just physical creatures, almost like animals, that can just live and die, and it's the circle of life. So that's been the last 500 years. But, but before that like way before that, one supreme thinker said that in the beginning, God created humans. 
and he formed a body for them, and he breathed a spirit into them, and you couldn't separate those two things. And then, interestingly enough, in the creation story in Genesis 2, he actually takes from uh, the man, or a man, Adam, that's what it means, uh, a piece of him, combines it with dirt from the ground, and brings these two creatures, male and female, out of that, and she has a spirit, and he has a spirit. And it says that the two become one. There's something that's sacred, exclusive, and holy in that moment. And, and Christians, and, and a lot of times this is said at Christian weddings, or I think it's still said at Christian weddings, I try and say it at Christian weddings, is that, that Christian marriage is two becoming one. It's a mystery, it's sacred, it's holy, and it's exclusive. That's not something that's said a lot. It's not very popular, but that's how it started. And here's the interesting thing. So if you're like, okay, that was, like, I don't really catch the point of that. You can come back in. Maybe that was just for one of my daughters. So in the beginning, God takes these two humans that have a physical self and a spiritual self, and, and you can't separate them, and he puts them in this place called Eden, which means in Hebrew, delight. It's this place of delight. It's a garden, and in the garden, he plants trees. Okay, why are trees important? Trees are bearing fruit, and he says in Genesis 2 that there are not all kinds of trees, but it's what the trees are for. It says that they're good to look at. They're pleasing to the eye, and they're good for fruit. You can eat from them. And so God puts the humans in the garden on day six, I'd like to add, and then the next day is rest. So their work came from a place of being. That's just extra, and you can go ponder that all week. I will. So God puts them in this garden of delight, and he says, I'm going to give you this fruit that's going to naturally and, and creatively just burst forth from these trees, and you can enjoy it, and you can eat from it, and I'm going to walk with you, and I'm going to talk with you, and the, they were one, God, the man, and the woman. They don't even have names yet, but this is the creation. This is the intention. This is how life was supposed to be, in connection and celebration for all of us. And what happens? <laughs> well, something over and over, sorry, I, I forgot this part. This is kind of important. Over and over and over in the story, God says, this is good. It's good, it's good, it's good. Except it can't be good if it's forced on you. Do you agree? You can't, it can't be good if it's forced on you. So there has to be the opportunity to choose it. Love isn't love if it's forced on you. Love is truly love if it's chosen. And so there has to be a way for the humans to not choose it for it to be good. And what's in the middle of the garden? Anybody remember this story? There's a tree, or maybe more than one. There's a tree of a knowledge of good and evil. Is there any other tree in the middle of the garden? There's a tree of life. The tree of life is, God says, you can eat from that tree. And when you eat from the tree of life, I would say that everything we've just said and described before that is a part of that. 
There's goodness there. There's dependency on God, but it's not, but it's a good dependency because he is the creator. There's beauty, there's abundance, there's intimacy, there's connection, there's celebration, there's enjoyment. That's what is encapsulated in the fruit of the tree of life. But there has to be another way. There has to be a way to say, I would rather not have that. And so, there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when you eat from that tree, it's not abundant, it's not dependent, it's not beautiful, it's not super, uh, what's the other word I'm looking for? It's potentially not good. And the man and the woman are in the garden. Now, if you want to turn to it, you can, but I have one of the verses that's incredibly important in this. Genesis 6, 3, where Eve, who Adam is with her, Adam, the man, the woman are there, so it's not all the woman's fault. They're in the garden, they're looking at the tree. Take a look at these words. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, and she took some and she ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Think about the senses that that's just invoked. She saw that the fruit of the tree was good, pleasing to the eye. There's sight, there's touch, there's taste. I, I'm pretty sure there's smell. It's a very multi-sensory experience. And yet, and that tree was called forbidden because it represents the other way, the way that God did not create. And when Adam and Eve eat from it, it's not that the tree was bad. The tree was actually good and it was good to look at. It's not that the fruit was bad. The fruit was pleasing to that. It's what it represents. That I can take and grasp what I want, when I want it, apart from God, and think that it will give me life. It's rejecting what God has created as beautiful, abundant, and good. It's like saying, God, the reality that you've created is not, there's gotta be a, something more. There's gotta be something better. And no matter how old you are, we have every day, I would I would. I would assert that we have every day the potential to reach out and grasp for something that we don't have, that we want, that is forbidden. And it's not because God doesn't love us, and it's not because he's trying to limit us, it's because we have to choose a dependent life, and that means that there's some limits. And so what we're really saying when we take and grasp that thing actually not what we're saying, what happens in the story when she takes and grafts and eats the thing, what does she see or say or realize? I heard it. Naked. Naked. I know. 
Yeah, and it's sort of like this. All of a sudden, it wasn't like, ah. At least that's what I see in the artwork. It's, all of a sudden, it's not good. All of a sudden, I need to cover up. And the, the humans are divided. And there's pain. And there's dissension. And there's disconnection. And it's not just from humans. It's from God. And this thing that we thought would give us more gave us less. It promised something it couldn't provide for us. And friends, that's what Proverbs 5 is trying to say to us. That's what the whole of Scripture, I would say, is trying to say to us. A God who has created us for relationship, and we deny that relationship, so he continues to reach out and redeem that relationship to restore us into that relationship, and it's good, but sometimes we miss it. And so, there's a sight and a smell and a taste and a touch, but it doesn't satisfy what we thought it would, and so we're left more empty. So add to this the idea of individual choice, that's what God gave us, right? And in the idea of the enlightenment, remember that historical lesson that you may or may not have enjoyed? That, that idea that, that reasoning and science and human expression became the paramount of this. So now we have individualism on the rise, and which anytime individualism is on the rise, guess what comes with it? It's a not so great consequence. Loneliness and insecurity. Because now when relationships of choice trump relationships of obligation, I'm always wondering if I will be alone. Now, in the good part of that, if you're in this super unhealthy or super harmful relationship, you can get out of it in a a society which now has choice. You don't have to stay in a relationship that would be harmful, whereas, you know, 200 years ago, you probably would be expected to do that. But one of the horrible consequences is that loneliness and insecurity now are things that we think about constantly, are they not? And we're in this situation where every day from the media, we're told You need to be popular. You need to be attractive. You need to have these possessions. You need to wear these clothes. You need to look this way. And then you won't be alone. And then you won't be insecure. And authors Shanti and Jeff Feldem, they write two books that are very good called For Women Only and For Men Only and talk about how much women struggle with body image. One author says, a woman thinks a negative thought about her body 13 times a day. It's a male author, right? really kind of wondered how he got that statistic, but is that, you don't have to admit that, ladies, if that's true, but I think that statistic might be a little low from the conversations that I've had with people. So loneliness and insecurity, now I get negative body image, and I have disconnection. And I would say, and I think the scriptures say, it all goes back to the garden when we reach out and grasp something that we think will give us more, that promises to provide us more, and it doesn't, we end up more broken, more disconnected, and more hurt. So I was talking to some college students a couple months ago and um, asking them about dating, and they're like, we don't date. We hook up. Or at least my friends do. Why? Well, because it helps us feel desirable, attractive, and not alone at least for a little bit. Oh, wow. Some people are even afraid of that rejection, so they turn to pornography. 
It's a $97 billion a year industry, according to a recent Time magazine. Think about that number. $97 billion. It offers instant gratification, no fear of rejection, and no commitment. And it's rampantly available. 49% of young women and 67% of young men agree that viewing it is acceptable. And the numbers that use it are 87% of young men and nearly one-third of young women. This is rampant. Just as adultery was rampant in Proverbs 5. It promises something that it cannot provide. And no one is hearing that message. People in the church and out of the church included. According to Covenant Eyes, a website and ministry dedicated towards helping people break through the bondage of this says that 68% of young men and 18% of young women view it every week. Constantly giving images that degrade people, that call them objects, that offer a two-dimensional relationship instead of a real relationship, and that damages because real human relationships take work. They take effort. They're not readily available and on demand, and you have to deal with people's feelings and emotions and often pain and insecurity and comfort and love and peace and sacrifice what God designed us for. So I think that that's part of what Solomon is trying to tell this child. Look at verses four and five. He says, in the end, she is bitter as, my verse says, gall. In the end, she is bitter as gall, her sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to the depths and her steps lead to the grave. So gall is this very bitter, uh, dark green leaf oil that makes one sick, actually. If you remember, Jesus was offered a sponge dipped in gall on the cross. Maybe your text says wormwood, which is this strong, bitter-tasting plant that symbolizes a deep sorrow. It might be enticing, basically, but it's always going to go from sweet to bitter. It's always going to go from sweet to bitter. And it can cut you just as easily as you can cut something else. That's the whole reference to the double-edged sword. Verse 6 says, She gives no thought to her way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she doesn't know it. Basically, I think Solomon is saying with this verse, you can't blame this person that's the seducer that is called the adulterer. She has not contemplated and pondered the things that we're talking about. What leads to life and what leads to not life? What leads to connection and celebration and things like the garden of delight and what leads to things like disconnection and disharmony and non-communication? She hasn't pondered that. You can't blame her. And, and on top of that, the word adulterous woman in the Hebrew is this word called zuer. Zuer is actually translated strange. So if your Bible says strange woman, 
or foreigner or foreign woman, that's the same word. Zuer is someone that is outside of the group. It's something that's outside of the group. Now think about that for a second, because here's the point. If it's outside the group, it's unknown. It's foreign. It's mysterious. It's secretive. It's provocative. It might be called exotic. Like we don't have many exotic animals as pets. In fact, I think there's a law against it, but they're cool, right? See, when you hear adulterous woman or adulterous man, you go, oh, no, I wouldn't do that. But when you hear exotic, ooh, I might want to find out about that. And when you hear it's something I can't have, you want it. As soon as your parents said, don't do this, how many of you went, I want to do that? I worked one time for a ministry that said, you can't drink in public, you can't have alcohol in your house. Um, we just think it's very wrong, and so that's just part of our deal. I never had a problem with alcohol before that summer, and then all I did was think about having a, a glass of wine because it was all of a sudden forbidden. Now it's not forbidden. It's not a problem. But that's what happens and that's what the significance of this word is, zuer, this mystery, this um, exotic, this forbidden place. And I think Solomon, who, let's just be honest, had 700 royal wives and 300 concubines, it's not like he's saying this from a place of hypocrisy or a place of arrogance. He's saying it from a place of humility, of remorse, of regret, of experience. He's earned the wisdom that he's sharing here. And so imagine someone that deeply loves you, who has earned their wisdom, sitting across from you and saying, my child, listen to me. Don't turn away from what I say. Keep your path far from the forbidden one, the forbidden person, or the forbidden thing. Don't go near it. Don't put yourself into that situation. Don't even get close. If we had time, I would do one thing that I usually do with my youth ministry students, and that's give a couple people a piece of chocolate. Well, you know what? Do you want to sit up front here and have some chocolate? No? No? You want to have some chocolate, Aaron? You want to have some chocolate, Jay? All right, you come up to the front here. I think, yep, yep, we're good. All right. So, Jay, we're going to actually have you be right there. Aaron, you come up, too. All right, you have to wait. We're probably going to go five more minutes in the talk, so you have to wait five minutes before you eat this, all right? You have to hold it, okay? All right, can you do that? Yeah, you can do that too? All right, you hold this. Yep, just hold it. Don't eat it, okay? Not, don't touch the chocolate. There, open your mouth. You hold this. All right. Okay? And because I love you, you can, you can have that. All right. So Solomon says, don't be tempted by this. And you might be thinking, you know what? I don't struggle with this. But I would say, if you think your physical body is separate from your spiritual body, then you might need to hear this from God. 
And if you think that you're a human being who sometimes has spiritual experiences, then you need to hear this too. If you're someone who thinks that consuming pornography, well, that's better than having an affair, then you need to hear this too. And if you think reaching out and grasping something that God says is forbidden because you think it will make it better is true, then this is for you. Did you eat some, Aaron? Good job. Way to go. Way to go. So Song of Songs is also a book written by Solomon, and he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires, which means until the time is right, which isn't when I think it's right. It's when God's timing is right. And so how are you doing at setting up limits in your life? How's that going? You still doing good? Okay, can you smell it? No? No, can you taste it? Yeah? Not really? Aaron, you're still doing good? You can smell it? Good job. Way to go. But you're not eating it. Way to not be tempted by that. Way to set up some impractical limits, you know, of keeping that closed. Jay? We'll talk about impractical limits for a second. Because, see, we, we tell, well, at least my parents told me that I couldn't go over to a girl's house that I liked if their, her parents weren't home, and she couldn't come to my house if my parents weren't home. That was just something they said. I couldn't stay out after midnight. One parent told me nothing good ever happens after midnight, to which I said under my breath, not for you maybe, but I'd like it to happen for me. <laughs> and then my parents would say, I need to know where you're going, how long you'll be gone, and when you plan on coming home. I don't want to control your life. I'd just like to know. And so my parents did this, and I'm kind of wondering, like, why they, at first I thought, well, why do they do this? It's because I can't see past the consequences. I can only see the fun. I can only see the chocolate. I can't imagine what would happen after that. And this proverb continues, and it says, here are the consequences. Not only will it go from sweet to bitter, You'll go from having much to having little. And through the next verses describes the social disgrace, the financial ruin, and the relational brokenness and pain of going after this and eating the chocolate before it's time. So keep going. Keep holding it. Now you might say, well, well that's for kids, but Jesus says, put in practical limits in your life. Matthew 5, he says, you know, you've heard it said don't commit adultery, but I say if you look at someone with lust, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. So if your good eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, please don't go home and stab yourself. His point was go to extremes to keep yourself from stepping over and taking something that is forbidden. You still doing good, Aaron? Jay, you doing all right? All right? It's, it's melting a little. Um, don't worry, though. We're almost done. See, I would say that, no, you got to wait. Wise people and wise marriages set limits. Not only do they see it as sacred and exclusive and holy, but they say it's okay to set limits. If you're not married, it's okay to set limits. I know, I've, I've got a distraction. Don't worry, we're almost done. So what limits have you set in your life. Almost there, Aaron. Wait, just keep waiting. 
You're engaging too many of your senses, buddy. Not only smell, but also eyes. You, you're going to have to go home and study this parable with your parents, this little poem. We're not going to go to the, to, the, to the place that I'd love to go, but... Yeah, I know. See, this is what happens when people don't set limits. I mean, and this is just chocolate. Imagine if we were talking about other things. So I'm not trying to make light of it. Well, I, I guess I am trying to make a light of it a little bit so it's easier to talk about. And you guys can sit down as we wrap up. Good job. Yeah, it's okay. You can go sit down. See, chocolate reminds us that when our senses are engaged, there's something that happens that God created that he says is good. And he wants that to happen in your relationships too, especially if you're married. He uses words like drink from your own well and rejoice in what you have and find satisfaction there and be exhilarated or even intoxicated in those things. And see, if you're not married, I would say that wise living and wise marriage is still about connecting and celebrating because you can be in a place where you can, um, this happened to me where I got to be with some friends in a safe place who got to jump off cliffs into reservoirs and swim in this clear, crisp, cool water surrounded by laughter of my friends, surrounded by nature with God, where we then swam out and a couple hours later had a bonfire on the beach and we smelled the smoke and we got to laugh and eat chocolate and marshmallows and there was connection and celebration and all of my senses were invoked and had nothing to do with marital intimacy. But I would say it has everything to do with what Jesus is talking about. Paul says, it's good for people not to be married, but not everybody can do that. So wise marriage would say, oh, marriage is optional. But it's holy, it's exclusive, and it sets limits. So how can you see marriage in the way that God would want you to see? How can you see wise living in the way that God would want you to see? I think it starts with saying, that that thing that is forbidden, that I want to reach out and grasp, that I think will fill me, will not fill me. It starts with saying, what God has given and what is he has created is good, abundant, holy, and enjoyable. Would you pray with me? God, as we look at your word and seek life in it, we realize that there are so many ways we do not find life in it. We think we will find it in things outside of us and things outside of what you've created, intended, and ordained. And God, we ask for your forgiveness in that. We confess that we look for things that we think will satisfy us and we often end up more broken and more empty. And God, as we have a little fun with chocolate and we talk about impractical limits. We don't make light of people and places and settings where marriages are on the brink of disaster, where regret and remorse are filling people's thoughts today, where it was hard to hear your word because of where, where they're at. And I pray that we would hear your forgiveness that we would hear your invitation 
to a radical, sacrificial, relational love. For you reached out to the people that were broken, to the people that were in illicit relationships and said, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Pray that those that are hurting today would find healing and hope. That none of us would be people that would judge them because we all know that we've reached out and taken things that we thought would give us life and haven't. And for those of us who feel like we are in a place of of wholeness with our relationships and with ourselves, God, I pray. I pray that we would set impractical limits for ourselves to avoid paths that lead to death and walk in paths that lead to life. Amen.